Hello and welcome back to the Oxford Policy Pod. We are delighted to be back after a brief break between terms here at Oxford. My name is Ujunwa Ojemeni and I'm super delighted to be your host for this episode on Africa's energy transition. This is our third and final episode in our climate change and energy series. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Dieter Helm, Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Oxford, Fellow in Economics at New College, Oxford, and Adjunct Faculty at the Blavatny School of Government. Previously, Professor Helm was a member of the Economic Advisory Group to the British Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change and Chair of the Natural Capital Committee. His research interests include energy, utilities, and the environment. Professor Helm was knighted in the 2021 New Year Honours to support services to the environment, energy, and utilities policies. In his book, The Carbon Crunch 2012, Professor Helm has criticized efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through current regulations and government interventions and the deployment of renewable energy, particularly wind power. Instead, he has recommended establishing a carbon tax and carbon border tax and increasing funding for research and development. In 2021, his book Net Zero was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize in the Global Conservation Writing category. Professor Helm, welcome and thank you for, so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So with COP26 concluded at the end of 2021, um, the energy transition as a key element of mitigating climate change is top of mind globally. Specifically, the African continent remains a development challenge with over 400 million people that still need to be lifted out of poverty. So I'd like to start by setting the context for our listeners. Um, We know that the threat posed by climate change is significant and imminent, and policymakers around the world are contemplating solutions to transition to net zero in the coming decades. What exactly is this so-called energy transition, and how does it fit in to the broader efforts to get to net zero emissions and keep global warming to 1.5 degrees or less? Well, the transition is a transition from a overwhelmingly fossil fuel world. Oil, gas and coal are 80% of world energy supply, uh, and that hasn't changed very much for quite a long time. And a transition involves either, when fossil fuels are used, sequestrating the uh, carbon dioxide in storages underground, rocks to rocks, as they say, or uh, through natural mechanisms, or just getting out of it and finding alternative ways of generating energy. And the crucial thing always to bear in mind is this is global warming. Doesn't matter where the emissions take place, they all contribute to that increased concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. And so it's as important sitting here in Oxford to reduce a ton of emissions in Oxford as it is in Lagos. And uh, one of the weak points of the Glasgow COP was not really to understand that the main priorities on climate change should be in Africa, in India, and actually China too. And that's where the future of our climate, and therefore ultimately of our planet, will be determined. And that's where the focus needs to be uh, addressed. Indeed, that's very great context. Um, Next, I'd like to ask how this energy transition looks different for Africa relative to other continents. I mean, what sources, what energy sources do African countries currently rely on? And what are some of the unique challenges that the continent faces with respect to getting to net zero? So what's really different and unique about Africa in this case? 
So Africa is a very diverse continent. And it's like talking about Europe or talking about Southeast Asia. There's a lot of differentials in this frame. But if you were to make gross and often unfair generalizations, you know, if one looks at uh, at least sub-Saharan Africa in general, the first thing to say is that agricultural productivity is extremely low. And that's because so far, agriculture agriculture is 25% of the global warming problem. So you really have to start with farming and agriculture to think about climate change. So if you're talking about a general area in which their population is probably going to double by about 250, certainly will in, not certainly will, but very likely to happen in Nigeria, which will be bigger in population size than Europe or America by that stage. We're talking about a substantial food need. We start with the basics. And the reason why agricultural productivity is so low in Africa is because there's very little application of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and chemicals to the land. Now, that comes with enormous environmental potential for damage. But the starting point is, how do you have an agricultural transition in uh, Africa, which is not uh, uh, carbon intensive? That's point one. The second point is, Africa has some of the great carbon sinks in the world. It's got rainforests and uh, lots of uh, open areas still, and it's got an enormous amount of carbon in the soils. Soils have four times the carbon of the atmosphere. So if the transition from the current population to double and the food that goes with it is accompanied by an intensification of agriculture through the use of fertilizers, etc., that's going to be carbon intensive. And then on top of that, damaging the soils will be quite difficult. That's point one. Point two is about the energy itself and how electricity is generated. And Africa has... Um, enormous hydroelectric potential, for instance, and it has great solar potential too. And because some areas of of sub-Saharan Africa, and here it's very heterogeneous, places are different, don't have well-developed electricity grids in the way that, say, a country like the UK would with the history of the coal industry, etc. The development of these networks can be a lot smarter than what uh, the developed world has. And that's about skipping a technology going forward. We're, we're, we're used to this in fixed, mo- fixed telephone versus mobiles. You know, lots of areas in Africa can go straight to mobile technology. So there's a great opportunity to make those steps. Solar is going to be an incredibly important part of this. Smart technology, etc. And Africa can be a powerhouse of the application of decentralized technologies to use energy better. And then there's all the other stuff. There's the stuff about petrochemicals, there's a stuff about steel, there's a stuff about um, aluminium, all the, uh, and the other minerals which are part and parcel of this frame. And again, these are where the challenges lie. But remember too, Africa is the source of many of the core minerals for the new renewable technologies too. And it's a powerhouse for that as well. And I would say, and, and, and. This is just the beginning of thinking through what those issues are. Thank you. I just want to move a little towards um, countries and what they rely on. So, for instance, we have some countries in Africa who rely on oil and gas extraction, but we also have a set of countries who are reliant of, 
on coal as a source of energy. What unique challenges do you think that these African countries face? So those that rely on oil and gas extraction relative to those who are reliant on coal as a source of energy. So, so that when we look at the current fossil fuel position in Africa, we have to recognize that not all fossil fuels are alike. So the pollution potential from coal is terrible, right? And we know that, okay? Uh, gas is much better than oil in this frame. And we also know that for the next few decades, whether we like it or not, and whatever the transition is, we're going to use a lot of oil and gas. 80% of world's energy is currently oil and gas. And it's completely naive to think we're suddenly going to go from 80% to naught when it's so pervasive in, um, uh, in these areas. And so Africans, like other people around the world, are going to be using oil and gas. And so it's not a stupid question to say, why don't you produce it yourself rather than relying on import? And so I'd make a strong distinction. Getting out of coal is an absolute priority. And the deal that South Africa got at Glasgow COP is a start of the developed world recognizing that they have to help pay for this get out of coal strategy. Okay. On the oil and gas, uh, there's a lot of gas off the east coast of um, Africa, right down the coast. There's the new oil prospects in Uganda. Uh, there's Nigeria, of course, which has always been a fossil fuel producer. The issue here is to extract what needs to be extracted, what's going to be consumed anyway, in as environmentally a benign way as possible. And much of oil and gas, very much coal production, has so much ancillary damage associated with methane leakages, coal waste, uh, pollution of rivers, etc. And so the priority on doing it properly is crucial. And we know the history of the deltas of Nigeria and how much pollution has been caused by uh, predominantly international companies who've exploited those resources in the past. This has got to be a cleanup action. It's got to be balanced, but it's utterly naive to think or expect that Africa should just switch immediately from using fossil fuels to none. That's just a ridiculous. And let's be clear, no developed country is doing that. You know, the U.S. is the largest producer of oil and gas in the world now, particularly oil. So let's be realistic. Let's try and at least do it in as environmentally benign way as possible, while at the same time developing the renewables, solar and the wind. And also, and I'm agnostic about this, start thinking seriously about nuclear power, too. You've outlined some very interesting points and challenges as well. And I'm just wondering how we then get this just energy transition for Africa, um, ensuring that it achieves its emission reduction targets, that it's environmentally friendly, but also that it supports its people through this transition. So currently, there are around 540 million people in Africa who lack access to basic electricity today. So overall, what policies do you think would be required to put Africa on a path to a just energy transition? And how will this transition affect these 540 million people? What policies do we need? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to say might sound slightly odd. It's not very difficult to know what the answer is. It's very difficult to do the answer. Okay, so if you go back in the history of thinking about climate change, the real starting point is back in 1988 with the Brundtland Report. 
And the Bruntner report at the UN was about sustainable development. And its core concept was, if we're to leave the next generation with at least as good assets as we inherited, environmental assets, there has to be a very substantial uh, funding transfer, not finance, funding, real money from north to south. And that's why it was called the North-South uh, study. And that's not changed at all. And if you look at Glasgow COP, one of the things that disappointed me the most is that while I think people are recognizing that we only crack climate change globally, because it's a global problem, if we crack it in Africa, India, uh, China, and other uh, developing countries, Brazil, and so on, if that's what we have to do, then we should spend more money on doing the get out of carbon stuff in the developing world and actually relatively less in the developed world, which is the absolute opposite of what's happening. So when I look at COP26, and I'm deeply disappointed by COP26, I never had great expectations and I think it's largely failed. Uh, I'm sorry to say that, but I think that's true. So the two big things which you might have expected would have been recognized is first, the funding from developed to, under, uh, to developing countries. And it's 100 million is the aspiration, uh, sorry, 100 billion annually is the aspiration. And that's as it's been for the last N years. In fact, 75 billion is what, dollars is what's been going on. And um, as I sadly reflect, that's equal to the annual dividend paid to shareholders by Saudi Aramco just to give it a perspective. It's trivial relative to the scale of the problem. And um, if you don't do the transfers, we won't solve the problem because Africa won't have a just transition. And then we won't solve climate change. You know, you can go on being unsustainable, but the problem is it won't be sustained. And the tragedy here is that uh, those uh, people closer to the equator will suffer much more than people in temperate areas like, uh, you know, in Oxford and England, where actually the impacts of climate change will be much less. Um, some of them might even be benign for the short run. Uh, and then just the final bit in the transfers is the forestry arrangement. And that is utterly trivial. The amount involved in that is less than we spent in the UK on the track and trace um, setup for uh, tracking coronavirus. That's how serious the amount of money is. And by the way, half of it is not public money. Half of it is supposed to be leveraged private money. So it's finance rather than funding. And uh, deforestation is not supposed to stop for the rest of this decade. That's serious and that matters in Africa too. So anyone who thinks that the COP framework is going to crack this problem, I think is sadly on a different planet from me. Thank you for laying it out very clearly. I, I think the question that then arises is what is then the solution if we are not getting, if the developing countries are not getting the funding they need from the developed countries and what solution exists to this issue and what role do development banks and international institutions have in supporting to bridge this financing gap? Well, the, the, the most important thing to say is if you don't bridge the gap, we won't crack the problem, okay? Therefore, we're going to have a lot of climate change. We're, we're scheduled for a lot anyway. You know, it's two and a half degrees at least from the way we're going, but it could be much worse. So there's, a, there's no sense of emergency about this, but in some sense, you know, within the lifetime 
of people being born today, this can be really serious. So, so if you don't take a sustainable route, it won't be sustained. That's the point. The second thing about development banks is they're about finance, right? That's lending people money to do stuff rather than giving them the money to do stuff. And that's a great distinction. So if you look at what traditionally happens with developing banks going back over the 20th century, they've really been an arm of foreign policy. So if you look what European development banks have been doing, if you look what national uh, banks have been doing, you know, there is a political agenda behind this. Understandably, you know, we're lending the money, uh, some country says, in return, we're going to lend it to people who are going to be nice to us. Right. And the excellent, uh, the, the example par excellence now is Chinese lending and the debt problems that then emerge for um, a number of countries in Africa as they find themselves unable to uh, meet the debt that's been taken on and then find themselves in an extremely weak political position to negotiate with the lenders. And all sorts of special things follow to do deals to get out of the mess that's then created. And the reason it's a mess is because what's required is funding. Africa needs, if it's going to do what's required for global warming, to be helped to do it because it's our problem, us all around the world, as addressing climate change. And it's completely outrageous for people in developed countries to say, well, you know, you, you develop without fossil fuels, right? We didn't. We've got this wonderful lifestyle. We put the carbon up in the atmosphere. But I tell you what, you can't. And in the run up to COP, there was a wonderful statement by the Indian energy minister who just spelt that out. You know, and so the, the truth is the, the developed world is responsible for most of the concentration of the carbon in the atmosphere now. And it's the developed world which has the lifestyle that's gone with burning all the coal, oil and gas. And if we want to continue that lifestyle, we have to crack climate change. And the only way we're going to crack climate change is by helping people in developing countries to be able to aspire to the same standard of living. Why shouldn't they? There's nothing unique about um, people in developed countries. We'll have to pay. And if we're not prepared to pay, well, the consequence is obvious. We'll have a lot of global warming. The sad thing is the people in developing countries will pay a bigger price in global warming terms for the damage that will come compared with developing countries. Indeed. So financing, 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 and actually getting the funds to the people that need it. I know in your work, you've advocated for carbon pricing mechanisms. Can you just explain to us why you feel that this is an effective solution to the climate crisis? And have you seen any effects um, on emissions in countries that have actually implemented it? Well, I suspect that when you and I go to a shop, we look at the prices and we make our decisions about how to spend the money that we've got on the basis of the, you know, uh, budget we've got in hand. And right now, things that are highly polluting are quite cheap. And things that are not highly polluting, that are environmentally uh, good, tend to be more expensive. Okay? So until you actually face the prices which reflect the pollution that the different things that you're buying cause, you're not going to make the right choice. And then you're not going to buy from the farmer who down the road is not using uh, heavy chemicals to produce their food and is not causing lots of emissions by their farming. You're going to buy the one buy the stuff from the farmer 
who's actually doing a lot of pollution because they're incentivized to do it. And that's why you need to change the prices to reflect pollution and benefit the non-polluting activities. Right? And lots of African agriculture, this is the, the flip side of having low agricultural productivity. A lot of agriculture in, in Africa is much more benign than is taking place in developing countries and should have bigger markets. So um, making polluters pay, the corollary of making polluters pay is benefiting the non-polluters and giving them the advantage they ought to have. Does it work? Well, the carbon price in Europe is very high, particularly under the European Emissions Trading Scheme, but also under the UK Emissions Trading Scheme. And the result is until Ukrainian crisis hit and um, uh, suddenly there's a massive security supply problem, basically coal was being squeezed out of the system. And in the UK, there's virtually no coal left now. And the reason for that is basically the carbon price makes it too expensive to run it. Whereas you know, that benefits all the cleaner energies, which of course now don't face the discriminatory position that they're non-polluting but get no benefit for that. But the polluting technologies with the coal um, don't have to pay the price of the pollution they cause. So it works. It's a long run solution. It's about a framework and fabric within which we address carbon. But I don't understand how you could possibly decarbonize the world without having a proper pollution price for carbon. So specifically for Africa, would, would the carbon tax make life more expensive for citizens across the continent who may be already vulnerable? And if so, how do we then protect those people? Well, there are a couple of things here. First of all, it make life uh, better for those people who aren't paying the carbon price because they're doing the right thing now. So there's always a winner. When you change the price of anything, um, the substitutes uh, get a benefit and the polluters get a cost. The second thing to say is it depends what you do with the money. And so you have a tax, it raises money for governments. What are they going to spend it on? Now, if it's a, a regime that spends it on military or whatever, that's, ne that's not necessarily going to help the population. If there's corruption, it's not going to help. But if it's spent on helping people to make the transition, so it's just reallocated, then the net income effect is zero and you get a double benefit. That's the argument. You get the polluters having to pay more and you get the money to effectively subsidize the transition itself. So it's absolutely about how good the um, institutions are in handling a revenue stream and reallocating it. And that's down to governance. And uh, I don't think we should go under any illusion. Most countries around the world uh, suffer from elements of corruption. And most governments around the world have really serious administrative difficulties. So you really have to think creatively about what happens to money, who spends it, how it's spent, and whether it gets the right people. Indeed. Moving on to the last two areas on current trends, um, I'll start with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, in your view, do you think that the pandemic uh, made Africa's energy transition more difficult or has it actually accelerated the pace of change in the right direction? I'm not sure whether it's made much difference to the long-term trend, but what it has revealed is that for a global problem, and the pandemic is a genuinely global 
uh, problem that we confront. The developed world is not prepared to do what it takes, even when it's directly in its own interest to help stamp out this virus, to make the transfers of vaccines and the other medical supports that are absolutely essential to cracking this problem. There has been some, and learning the lesson of the failures to quickly help uh, vaccinate the populations in Africa, hopefully will teach the world a bit more about why it needs a bit more global cooperation to solve these global problems. But actually, um, we're all worse off because of the virus. Uh, everybody's public finances have deteriorated. Everyone's household budget has actually deteriorated because of the uh, challenges that have confronted people. And um, actually, one of the reflections I have on the coronavirus is that uh, we spent all this money, uh, often extremely inefficiently and badly, to address this pandemic. And um, we seem to think that we should be as well off afterwards as we were at the beginning. It's all got to be paid for. Right? And that's the hard lesson that's out there. And I would very much hope that one of the things that comes out of the uh, pandemic is that we get serious about global cooperation, about virus research, virus protection, etc. And we're going to need a lot of that because climate change is coming and climate change is going to create an enormous number of health problems, as well as uh, lots of biodiversity and other difficulties going forward. So maybe it's taught the world a lesson, but I'm old enough to have seen lots of incidents in the past where the lessons should have been learned and they haven't been. So sadly, uh, I'm not particularly optimistic that um, this has made a uh, fundamental change to the difficulties of, of cracking the climate change problem. Time will tell. Lastly, specifically relating to the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict, do you think there are any implications of this conflict for Africa's energy transition? And how do you think this conflict affects Africa as it tries to transition its energy systems? Most of the impacts of this transition from a climate change uh, perspective, from what's going on with Russia's appalling invasion of a sovereign state, has been to massively distract the US and Europe in particular, but also China and other countries, to realise that there is a short-term uh, massive security threat, and particularly with Putin discussing using nuclear weapons. And this will uh, pivot a lot of attention towards defence, security, and the production of fossil fuels independent of Russia's oil, gas and coal. You've seen it in Germany, it's been utterly dramatic by a government that's actually got the Green Party as a core to it. Reversing the closures of the nuclear power stations, moving towards LNG, uh, getting serious about hydrogen. There's all sorts of stuff happening on that front. And you've seen what's happened to the oil price too. So my guess is that the oil and gas reserves in Africa will be seen as more valuable rather than less. And therefore, in the short to medium term, actually uh, the fossil fuel production of Africa will receive quite a significant boost. And a lot of uh, world investment banks being driven by so-called ESG and, and all these uh, broader criteria will recognise that excluding oil and gas is not actually in the short run such a great idea. Um, and particularly where 
uh, world markets need that oil and gas. And I expect to see China and um, European and other companies pushing in to um, develop further those resources going forward. Not sure that's good for climate change, but right now, you know, if you go back to last year, climate change was the number one issue in global discussion. I bet you if you do a poll this year, it'll come way down uh, below protecting ourselves from a nuclear explosion, uh, reinforcing troops, military defense spending, and all the stuff which um, I can recall from the days of the Soviet Union and the cold uh, and the Iron Curtain and the Cold War in Europe. Those preoccupations many people in Europe thought and the US had been uh, put into history books. Right? What the last uh, week or two has shown is that actually uh, we can't rely on neighbors solving problems without tanks, missiles, guns, and threatening nuclear uh, catastrophe. And a nuclear catastrophe would be much more serious than climate change. Um, so sadly, this has uh, uh, changed the dialogue a lot. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure and um, looking forward to engaging for further soon and taking your class um, in Trinity term on energy. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And um, Good luck with the rest of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Professor Helm. To learn more, I'll be speaking with Fatma Lucy Nyambura. Fatma is a policy officer at the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, focusing on commodity trading and state-owned enterprises transparency. Her work entails development and implementation of policies to increase disclosure of oil gas and mineral sales and purchases. Fatma also provides project management support to the policy team and assists in coordinating the Commodity Trading Working Group. Prior to joining EITI, Fatma worked in development consulting and was involved in the implementation of extractive industry and private sector programs in Ghana, Georgia, Liberia, Kenya, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Somalia, Uganda, Zambia and Zimbabwe. Fatma is an advocate of the High Court of Kenya and a certified public secretary. So Fatma, welcome and thank you for joining me today. To start, could you tell us about the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI? Um, really, what does EITI do and how is the organization supporting Africa's energy transition? Well, thank you very much, Ajuno, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm very honored. And now to get to your question, the EITI stands for the Extractives Industry Transparency Initiative. And what we are is a global standard for enhancing transparency and accountability in the governance of oil, gas, and minerals around the world. At present, we have 56 implementing countries all around um, all the continents. So when it comes specifically to the energy transition, I think if it's okay with you, I'd like to, you know, take a two-pronged approach to this, I would say, response. So when it comes from the EITI perspective, how we are helping countries prepare is encouraging them to collect, disseminate, and analyze data. What I mean by that is looking at, for example, oil and gas producers, they need to understand what is the contribution of the oil and gas industry, for example, to the GDP? 
what finances are at risk should the energy transition, for example, be accelerated and their countries are no longer able to sell some of uh, you know, these resources that they have. But also, on the other hand, what potential other resources do they have when we look at critical minerals? And when we look at these other potential resources also, what are the gaps? Because in some countries, what we have come to see from our work is that they really focused on oil and gas, but left their mineral industries behind. There are also others also that did not develop their gas industries, and gas is now being viewed as a transition fuel. So also helping them there, you know, take advantage and capture some of these opportunities. On the other hand, you know, I'd also like to speak to you very much as an African and as a young African woman, where, you know, I do say the energy transition presents so many opportunities for us on the continent. However, what I do want to see and want to ensure that happens is that it's beneficial, fair and inclusive. What I mean by that is that in practice, we need to ensure that both the social and economic opportunities should be examined and the policies and laws being developed are for the benefits of the citizen. What I mean by that is that we need to look at the transition in two levels. So what I've discussed with you, for example, is very much, I would say, government level, urban level. You know, these are the people who are empowered, who have the tools, who have the resources to prepare for this. But at the end of the day, in Africa, we also do have a very large rural population. And this rural population, to be very honest, uses not even fossil fuels. They use, I would say, the likes of wood to, you know, attend to their energy needs. So we need to ensure that we are also capturing this demographic. Otherwise, what will happen is that those in urban areas will move along. They'll be using their solar panels, they'll be generating wind. But at the end of the day, these gains will not trickle down to everyone. So in conclusion, you know, what I just want to say is that I think we all need to recognize that when it comes to the energy transition, and that's something we very much see at the EITA, is that there's no one size that fits all. Each of the African countries that were implemented in, which are 20 or seven of them, have different levels of energy access. They also have different levels of energy security. So when looking at each and every country, I would say the aim is to ensure that the solutions that are being presented are viable, are localized, and most importantly, are sustainable in the long run. Thank you. Thanks for such a comprehensive background. I think you've touched on most of the aspects we're going to do a deep dive into today. Specifically, um, in terms of the African continent and how you see the spread in terms of the countries within the continent, we'd like to know what countries in Africa are particularly reliant on extractive industries. Could you just tell us your perspective around Africa's energy mix and how it varies across countries within the continent. Um, thanks, Juno, for that question. Um, I do think it's very important, as you say, to examine the energy mix because without understanding the energy mix, we cannot provide practical solutions. So just to answer your question, you know, if we look at economies that are dependent on um, fossil fuels, if we start in the West, um, we'd begin with Nigeria, of course, which the dependency, you know, the ratio to GDP has varied from 80 to 90% over the last decade. Um, if we move further down to Central Africa, I would like to highlight the likes of Chad and Republic of Congo. And then, you know, if we move south, you know, not oil-based, but if I could look at fossil fuel, coal, you know, we would mention South Africa because that's very important for their electricity sector. 
So, however, what is interesting on the you know flip side of the end of the continent is that we also have those that are becoming pioneers in clean energy. And here, you know, I'd point out, for example, my home country, Kenya, which is very big on geothermal energy. Our energy mix actually was about 60% renewable because most of it comes from geothermal, hydro. Um, if we go even to the north, our neighbors, Ethiopia is also a big one. Um, if we go to the west as well, looking at the likes of Côte d'Ivoire, Côte d'Ivoire produces a lot of electricity or energy, you know, from gas and even exports it to its neighbors. So I'd say for Africa, you know, there are, we have both, you know, if we look at it, we have both sides of the coin. So for me, I would say, how do we move forward knowing this? I believe this gives us a very good opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer learning, that there are those that may be one step ahead in diversifying their energy mixes. This serves as a really good opportunity for these countries to export this expertise, um, to export this knowledge, you know, to their peers and help them set up some of these industries. Um, and then when it comes to the others, for example, that produce oil, it also serves them as an opportunity to understand, do they have viable gas? Can this gas be used, you know, now citing Côte d'Ivoire to generate energy? Can this energy be exported? And here also where I see there's an opportunity, for example, for the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement, that is a very good to try and help us, I would say, build an electricity framework. If we can see how to, whether it's ensuring grid standardization, whether it's helping us build how you know, we'll calculate kilowatts per energy, ensuring standardization in the construction. Because at the end of the day, if your neighbor is generating, but your infrastructure does not correspond, unfortunately, you know, the benefits will be limited. So I think there's a very good opportunity here for the FCTA to come in um, you know, as a leader in this trade agreement, help us dig deep, not only looking at the legal and fiscal frameworks, but also very much looking at the infrastructural element. And also on the other side, what some of the other benefits that this can give is also lowering costs. Because something, you know, we also need to be very honest about is energy access and increasing energy access comes at a cost. However, if we are able to bring this cost down by economies of scale, I believe that would be of big benefit. And here, most importantly, I would call on our regional bodies, the likes of ECOWAS in West Africa, the likes of the EAC in Eastern Africa, and of course, SADAC in the Southern. These regional bodies can ensure that there's some comprehensiveness by their member states in tackling this issue to ensure that the economies of scale are realized. You've spoken so much about um, the role that the extractive industry plays um, for the entire continent, but also you've spoken about how this transition would affect the challenges and the opportunities that countries that are reliant on these industries um, will face. So I think it's very interesting. I think it's now time for us to then see what would these industries need to change um, so that the African continent can meet its net zero targets, particularly the extractive industries and the role they play for Africa's energy supply and security. What role would these extractive industries then play in this transition as we go ahead? And how will we be able to change the way they currently operate to meet the net zero targets for the continent? Well, what the extractive industries could do, first and foremost in me, is transparency. And what I mean by that is transparency in production, transparency in export, transparency in revenues. Because it is only when we understand what is at stake 
that we can form the right policies and laws in order to ensure that mechanisms are in place to prevent, I would say, disastrous, you know, economic impact. So if we look at, for example, you know, the issue of oil subsidies, um, this is an issue that is common, you know, across both producing and non-producing countries. Um, we do appreciate that it's an important tool for macroeconomic policy. You know, it does help uh, to keep inflation at bay. However, research from the IMF and World Bank, you know, has indicated that fossil fuel subsidies amount to $5.2 trillion worldwide. And on top of that, that research also went to show that the richest 20% of the population benefit six times more from fossil fuel subsidies than the poorest 20% of the population. So what is important to capture there is that there needs to be, I would say, an understanding of what is the cost of maintaining some of these industries. And what I'd like to state here is that as the EITI, we are agnostic when it comes to the use of fossil fuel subsidies. But what we do encourage our implementing countries is to disclose this information so that citizens can understand the trade-off associated with these government strategies and the impacts of these trade-offs on not only public finance, but also carbon emissions. Because what has, you know, we have seen over the, our past work is that subsidies can slow down efforts to enhance or promote the energy transition by keeping the cost of fossil fuels low. And therefore, it makes it more expensive for cleaner sources to penetrate the market. So for me, there needs to be an understanding of, you know, some of these fiscal tools and what is the benefit in the long run, just to ensure that, you know, no one is left behind, no country is left behind. Um, aside from that, I think for extractive companies, it's also very important to begin thinking about reskilling their staff. And here I'd like to point out, for example, you know, the UK does have a white paper on their transition, you know, from fuel, and they dedicate a whole chapter to this topic because we need to recognize that some skills might either become redundant or there will be a reduced need for them because some of these, you know, if you look at renewable energy resources are less, I would say, human intensive than the oil and gas industry. So here, what we would need government to do is, for example, support in developing policies that I would say advocate for responsive training, capacity building, and curricula. Aside from that, you know, they need to incentivize companies to begin uh, either, you know, uh, helping their staff to prepare. It could be on a technical level if it's reskilling. It could be, for example, providing them with opportunities, you know, to go back to school and even change their careers, but this is something that needs to be tackled in a systematic manner in order to ensure that we do not disenfranchise or have wide redundancies in the future. Another area I think is also very critical is funding and technical assistance for what I'd call medium and small scale enterprises. And these ones, you know, are the ones who support the oil and gas industries. You know, when we have the majors come in, they don't come in and do everything in the value chain you know, especially like in midstream and even in some components of the upstream, they always get a lot of suppliers to be it, is it servicing, you know, is it um, providing food, you know, is it the cleaning? There are all these other components that go to extraction of, you know, oil, gas and minerals. So here it's very important for both extractive companies and government to support, I would say, these MSMEs 
in and greening, I would say, their sources of energy. This is because, you know, when we look at, again, emissions reporting, while multinational companies have primarily been looking at scope one and scope two emissions, and these are the, one, these are the emissions that are within their ambit, they are increasingly being asked to report on scope three emissions. And scope three emissions would involve their partners, you know, and suppliers. And therefore, you know, if African governments, if extractive companies do not begin to support these medium and small scaled enterprises to upscale themselves with green technology, understanding how to do emissions reporting, I do honestly fear that some of them might be left out of this value chain in the long run. Indeed, you've touched on so many, so many important points. And, and I'm just wondering, how is this transition right, different for Africa relative to other continents? What's unique, what's unique about Africa and what challenges specifically is Africa going to face that is unique to other continents in going through this transition, just like you've described? You've, you've brought up so many important points, but I want to now know what's unique for Africa and what are the unique challenges we face as a continent to reach some of our net zero emission targets and to just transition in a just way. Thank you, Genoa. I think, you know, first and foremost, I would say some of the unique challenges is, you know, no surprises here, access to funding. So access to funding, you know, has been a big issue even when it came to developing our existing oil, gas and mining resources. And now, even before this development has completed, we are now being asked to begin preparing for the transition. So that for Africa is going to be a big issue because on the one hand, you know, do governments begin diverting the resources they've already put into, I would say, actualizing some of these industries, they start diverting them halfway? Or do they see it through in the hope that they'll recoup their costs before the energy transition comes in? And aside, you know, those are some of the questions that need to be asked. And then also, aside from that, you know, leaving the oil, gas and mineral resources aside, following the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen statistics from the World Bank and IMF counting numerous countries all across from the West down to the South that are at risk for debt distress. And therefore, at the end of the day, as a government, are you going to prioritize, you know, saving the economy? or starting to give tax breaks and build infrastructure for green technology. You know, something has to give. Healthcare for your citizens is more important. So I really think that there needs to be support. So here, I mean, there are, you know, a few funds that have come up, such as the Green Climate Fund, which is established as part of the UNFCCC framework. And the aim of this is to assist developing, uh, uh, to assist developing countries in adaptation and mitigation practices to counter climate change. So the Green Climate Fund has several programs, one of which is, for example, the Sustainable Renewables Risk Mitigation Initiative, or SRMAI facility. And the purpose of this facility is to help in de-risking private sector investment in renewable energy. There's also another fund by the Africa Development Bank, known as the Sustainable Energy Fund for Africa, what it does is provide, again, catalytic investment for private sectors in renewable energy and energy efficiency. So the CEFA fund by the AFDB works in two ways. So they do provide, you know, finance, but they also provide technical assistance in these projects. So to ensure that um, 
the projects are more robust and of course, you know, improve the risk return profile of these individual investments. And then last but not least, when we come to capacity building, you know, which is something I'd even quoted that we need to ensure we're investing in, we have the East African and the West African Alliance on Carbon, market, on carbon Markets and Climate Finance. So the aim of these alliances is to strengthen the capacities of the member countries, as well as offer a platform where the countries can share experiences to foster a regional approach towards the future internal carbon mechanism of Article 6 of the UNFCCC framework. So what I would really encourage, I would say, governments and government officials is to take advantage of some of these facilities that are available to them on demand and on request in order to ensure that these processes and these investments start to be made in a systematic and gradual phase as they plan for how to either, you know, descale or, you know, ramp down production, but ensuring on the other hand that renewable energy comes to supplement these gaps that they may have in revenue from oil and gas. This is amazing. Thank you. You've really clearly defined some clear paths and opportunities for the continent to look at, both externally and within the continent. But I would like to know, within individual countries, um, do you think there are any policies that um, African countries can actually put in place to ensure that this transition is just? And when I mean just, I, I mean it's going to achieve its emission reduction target, but also it supports its people, which you just talked about, the people through this transition, the people that are going to potentially lose jobs, the people that don't have access to electricity today in the continent, around 540 million people still don't have access. So what policies then can individual countries consider to ensure that they meet their emission targets, but they support their people and ensure that this transition is what we define as just. Huh, well, that's 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 a hot potato. <laughs> I think we can we can both agree, especially the use of the word just energy transition has been very, <laughs> you know, people view it in different ways. So forgive me if I focus more on energy transition. I I, I wouldn't want to misquote myself because I, I you know I don't per se come from a civil society organization and therefore I might be lambasted if I, you know, perceive myself to be the purveyor of what the just energy transition is. But when it comes to, you know, tools to assist governments to prepare for the energy transition, um, you know, here I'd like to highlight what has been done in South Africa. So just two weeks ago, South Africa passed their carbon tax, which I mean, to the best of my knowledge, um, is the first on the continent. You know, the minister read it out in parliament, which was very exciting. So what I found interesting, for example, about this framework they've put in place is that they do recognize that they need to give their industries time. So the minister did not come in and say, you know, this commences next month. We all expect you to pay X amount. No, they put it on a graduated scale beginning in 2025. So what I really like, I found that very progressive because it gives them between now and then to first begin undertaking advocacy. And this advocacy, now to come back to your question and ensuring no one is left behind, this advocacy I would expect would be not only at a company or national level, but also going down to the grassroots in order for people to understand what does this mean for, you know, where I work or if I wanted to start a business or for me as a person, 
what the, what are these funds that the government is collecting, you know, from this carbon tax going to do for the citizens? And here is where, you know, call on CSOs to be at the very forefront of these discussions to already begin planning out with parliament that we are going to collect this funding. You know, is it looking at, you know, if we talk about South Africa, communities, for example, affected by the coal plants in their neighborhoods? You know, we all know that they've suffered years of respiratory diseases. So what is the immediate actions that need to be taken in order to ensure that the, uh, I would say, quality of life is, of these communities is improved? How will these communities also, I would say, earn a living now that some of these industries are likely to be phased out within, you know, let's say the next 50 years? So it serves as a very good platform and opportunity to give people, I would say, the standing if I may quote here, you know, my background is in law. So uh, we say law, locker standing <laughs> to give you the legal standing to come and discuss some of these things in order to ensure that, yes, no one is left behind at a national level. Indeed, indeed. You you, you talked about carbon taxes and, and, and the concern I had was around it potentially making life more expensive for citizens in the continent who are already vulnerable. But I like the point you made about ensuring transparency on what the funds collected are being used for. Um, I'm hoping that when it's very clear how these funds are used, they would be used for the most vulnerable. They will be used to support those that need to take on other cleaner solutions. And hopefully we can protect um, the, the most vulnerable in our societies when we do that. Thank you. And, and just to just drill a bit more around funding mechanisms for this transition. One issue that keeps coming up, um, even as recently as COP26, was the hope that developed countries would live up to their commitments to about $100 billion annually to support developing countries with climate change. Um, this commitment has not been met, and it's just not being met. I'm just trying to see, do you have any thoughts on this? And how do you think that developed countries can step up? Are there solutions to this issue? Why are we not getting the funds that have been pledged um, to support developing countries in this process? Well, you know, that's a very, you know, interesting and I would say almost philosophical question. So <laughs> uh, perhaps here I'd, I'd like to put the disclaimer that this, this is my view and very much not the EITI's views on why you know, this 100 billion isn't being met. So as you said, COP26 was just on the back of us coming from a pandemic that, you know, no one knew how long it's going to last. Um, no one knew when the end is coming. And I would say, I would dare to say, we're still feeling the effects of the pandemic. You know, some of the industries have not ramped, have not been able to ramp up, to, uh, ramp up sorry, to the capacities that they were, you know, in March, 2020 when the first lockdowns went into place. That for me, and I feel that the, re, the emerging crisis we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine is going to exacerbate this issue of funding. Because let's be honest, um, Western countries, European countries in particular, now also have to focus on their energy security, which is being called into question. Um, you know, I've been seeing statements even yesterday, I believe the EU released a roadmap on how to decrease their dependency on gas. Uh, the US as well made a statement that they want to decrease their dependencies on, you know, oil. But they're not going to do that without funding themselves. You know, they're, they're going to have to, I would say, 
provide funding to one, undertake studies, you know, provide pilots on how in practice this reduction or these dependencies are going to happen. So to be very honest, in the long run, I see the global developed countries being unable to meet this target because they need to, I would say, support first their domestic needs. Indeed, this then brings us to the point around how African countries can gain the necessary financing to support this transition. You've spoken about a couple of things. You even talked about carbon taxing. Um, But the issue is that most times our fiscal spaces, our budgets can't, it's already limited. As you mentioned, there's so many needs. There's education, there's health. Do you think there's a role for the private sector to play in, in financing this transition? And are there innovative tools beyond um, the traditional grants or loans that can be used and also beyond carbon um, taxing, which you mentioned, which is quite innovative as well. Is there anything else, basically, is my question. Is there any other means of financing this transition beyond our budgets, beyond carbon taxes, beyond hoping that the developing country, developed countries would provide the fundings that we need? Um, yeah. Well, interesting question. I mean, to what just comes to the top of my mind now are emissions trading systems. Um, from what I understand, I do know that the World Bank is trying to pilot or rather assess the viability of such systems in Cote d'Ivoire and I think it was Guinea. I forget the other country, but I do recall Cote d'Ivoire was one of them on whether this is viable. I mean, it's been successfully piloted in Europe. Is it viable in Africa? I don't know. I think it's too soon to tell. But what I do believe in, it doesn't hurt for us to try. Because at the end of the day, Africa, you know, their their emissions are less than what, you know, our emissions are less. And therefore, we do have that space, I would say, to trade. And now that brings in what you're saying about the private sector. Because when it comes to emissions trading, you know, this would require the private sector to be the ones tracking. If you're looking at you know, the big industries. Let's talk about, you know, the manufacturing. Let's say, you know, big polluters like cement, which is very big, you know, across Eastern and West Africa. If you look at cement industries, that's one industry we could target and say, you know, let's come in, let's teach you how to start counting your emissions. Let's, you know, do a pilot project and see their possibility of trading. Because as you rightly put it, you know, debt sometimes, you know, it gets to a point where debt is also not a viability. And especially, as you've said, looking at some countries are going into debt distress. So there will need to be new and fresh ways of thinking. So, and to be honest, it doesn't even have to be an ETS. You know, we could come up with something new as Africans. We could borrow, we could look at what does the ETS do? How is the ETS implemented? And then find a solution for us that works. Because at the end of the day, localized solutions are the best because there's no one size fits all. So to answer your question, I think, you know, more pilot programs are needed, to be honest, because it's only from generating data that we can answer concretely some of these questions. Indeed, indeed. That was a great way to wrap up that segment on, on funding this transition. Now, I just want to wrap up with some last discussions around the role of women and gender and this energy transition, because I know that this is a topic that is very, um, it's very important, and I know we're both passionate about it. So I'm really excited to just touch on a few things around this as we try to conclude. We know that women are disproportionately vulnerable to both the disruptive effects of climate change and even the energy transition. 
Um, how can governments ensure that this transition accounts for this disproportionate impact on, on, on women, especially, given that women have been, even for energy access, um, women most times are the ones that suffer from lack of access or benefit the most potentially when access is provided. Um, so how can we ensure that policymakers adopt a gender lens into the energy policies, into the future as we move, as we move ahead? Thank you, Jidwa. That's an excellent question. And yes, you are very right. As an African woman, gender is, you know, very close to my heart and something that I would say we all experience, even if we're in professional settings, you know, every day. We're not removed from it. It's still very much alive and impacts us. So I think it's very important, you know, in my work, in everyone's work, your work, that a gender lens is, you know, put to this. So first, you know, I'll just let's look at what we consider. What is gender equality? So for me, gender equality means equal ease of access to opportunities, regardless of gender. And this includes economic participation and decision making. And for me, what you know is very clear at present is that African women are grossly underrepresented in both the public and the private sector. Um, to be honest, I think the only exemption would be Rwanda, where you know even majority of their parliament is women, over the half their ministers, I would say they to the best of my knowledge, they'd be the only exception on the continent. Um, and with the energy transition, there's a real risk that these inequalities, especially in extractives, you know, oil, gas, and minerals that has traditionally been a male-dominated sector, will continue to be exacerbated. Um, and this is even looking at it, let's start, you know, right from the beginning at education. Um, the energy transition needs more people in STEM. Um, STEM has traditionally been an industry that women do not participate in, more so African women. So here, you know, there's an opportunity, I would say, not only for governments, but even a lot of foundations, companies and CSOs, you know, to ensure that women who want to pursue STEM are supported and that even women in STEM, furthermore, are even given the necessary funding, the tools, the space to ensure that the ideas actually do come to fruition. Because as you've rightly said, you know, women are the backbone of the African economy. So women do have the answers to some of these issues. You know, they're the ones who are in the home consuming the most energy. Therefore, they do know that what can make my life, what are the localized solutions that can make life easier? You know, women should definitely be involved even in conceptualization. Through the EITI, what we have done is ensuring that the multi-stakeholder groups, and these I would say are the groups that implement the EATI in all our 56 countries at a national level, ensure that they have a composition of both men and women. And how this works in practical terms is that, for example, in Guinea, the civil society there passed that, you know, them for their constituency, because the multi-stakeholder groups have three constituencies. One is government, one is companies, and one is civil society. And each of these constituencies elect representatives for a term of two to three years to participate in these multi-stakeholder groups. So in Guinea, for example, the civil society there decided that for their constituency, a third of the representatives must be women. And there, for example, in 2019, it went from one woman in the multi-stakeholder group to three women in the multi-stakeholder group. So already you've increased the decision-making capacity. Um, now, if I can give you a more, I would say abundant example, um, the Philippines, you know, in 2019, the EITA report provided gender disaggregated data on employment at a project lo at a local level, sorry, 
This included also having local and indigenous desegregation, the contractual status of staff, their union membership, their pay and benefits, as well as um, the gender and diversity policies of these large mining companies. And what that study showed is that only 12% of the mining workforce was women. And also that, you know, no surprises, most of those women did not occupy leadership positions. So what the EITI in the Philippines was able to do with this information was they published a study providing concrete recommendations to be included in the amendments to the Philippines Mining Act of 1995 to include gender sensitive provisions. And what I really like, for example, about this case is that, again, it's using data to inform policy, which is what the EITI advocates for. Um, you know, our standard has several provisions on gender and the term we use is gender mainstreaming, which is not seeing gender as a standalone. It's seeing gender as integral to the day and day working. So through that, I would say, you know, how I would encourage, it could be companies, for example, this could be governments, is collect the data, analyze the data, and then from that data, come to conclusions. Because it's very easy to say, we will have, you know, three women on our board. But, you know, how has that helped, as you've said, both from women in urban to women in rural? You know, some of these responses, because again, looking at even when it comes to the energy transition, um, some of these investments are going to be localized. They're going to be on the ground. So if we're saying, yes, there are two women in the boardroom, but the workforce at the actual site is 100% men, then we are not going to have these changes that we want. So to ensure the changes is there, you know, let's, let's harvest the data, let's analyze the data, and let's use it to co develop concrete policy solutions. Thanks. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us today, Fatma. Thank you for sharing very actionable um, suggestions. And thank you for being very clear on what we can do, not just as government or policymakers, but even as individuals, as corporates, um, and just across board in the industry. Thank you for sharing examples across the continent and the work that EITI does as well really looking forward to getting maybe some of the resources that you've mentioned and we can share it with our listeners as well in terms of some of the reports and some of the recommendations made if they are publicly available. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Juno, for your time. And yes, I will share with you, we have um, a policy on fossil fuel subsidies. We also have a policy on how to mainstream gender in EITI implementation. So I will be sure to forward them to you via email and please do share them with your listeners. And of course, I really encourage anyone who listens to this, please do feel free to approach us in order to see how you can work you know, with us in order to implement or understand some of these challenges you may be facing, be it at a government level, company level, or even you know, other international organizations that might want to work with us on some of these issues. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Oxford Policy Pod with our guests, Professor Dieter Helm and Fatma Lucy Iambura. This episode was hosted by Ujunwa Ojemeni and produced by Reed Lisik. Special thanks to Charlotte Hansen for research support and expertise. The executive producers for this season of OPP are Reed Lisik and Livy Beha. To stay up to date on season four, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod underscore and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. Cheers.